together. I mean, I'll read it and you listen, or you can follow along on the screen. We're going to pick the story up. This is after the prodigal son uh, returns home and, and uh, the father responds to his return. And uh, then there's this moment in the story where the focus shifts away from the prodigal and on to the other son. So we're going to start reading in verse 25. Uh, there's a celebration going on, you know, up at the house. That, that's the context just before. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back, safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. And so his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. And yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. It's the word of God. We've uh, been studying this chapter for some weeks now. And uh, last week we finished looking at that portion of the story that involves mostly the younger brother. The prodigal son as he's called. Uh, that word prodigal is kind of an interesting word. You may or may not know what that uh, means the word prodigal actually means it's the idea of spending money or resources freely and recklessly. That's what one uh, definition in the dictionary gives us. It's the idea of being wastefully extravagant. And we have actually titled this series Reckless God exactly because when it comes to understanding the grace and the love of God, we naturally and rather sinfully think that. God is just a little bit reckless with his grace. Uh, he is kind of prodigal, in other words, when it comes to dispensing his grace. And, and God should actually only give his grace to the people who deserve it. To me. I'm not sure about you, but I know I deserve it, you see. And that idea right there is the problem, of course. That idea right there is exactly why Jesus tells these stories. He wants to disturb our thinking. Uh, we saw last week that the younger brother comes to the father and he asks for his share of the estate. Might have been as much as 40% of the estate. And that right there, what he did, we have come to understand, was tantamount to telling his father, I want what you have, but I don't want you. In fact, he's really saying to his father in that culture, I wish you were dead. And of course, uh, in our culture, that would be a very, very disrespectful thing to say. But understand, in that culture back then, at that time, that was an outrage. Absolutely an outrage. This kind of behavior was unthinkable. It brought public humiliation on the family that a son would act that way, and more particularly, humiliation on the father. And yet we saw that when the younger brother came to his senses and decides to come home, the father, which he had disrespected and betrayed and humiliated 
and publicly shamed, that same father sees his son far off at a distance and runs to his son. And when he gets there, he embraces him and he kisses him. And he puts a new robe on his son. And he he asks them to bring a ring, a ring that indicates a son, a son of the family. This is the unworthy son, the totally undeserving son. And uh, he doesn't even wait to hear the son's repentance speech. The father doesn't. Uh, He does all of this before his son repents. Uh, From that too, we saw that it wasn't It wasn't this son's repentance that caused the embrace or the kiss of the father. It was the other way around. It was the father's kiss and the father's embrace and the father's mercy that enabled the son's repentance. And that's important. Um, Now, if we were to stop Jesus' story right there, we have kind of a nice story. Uh, We get maybe even a little emotional, a little sentimental, and we say, man... What a nice moral that is. Be forgiving. Be loving. Be accepting of people who say they're sorry and come repenting to you of their wrongdoing. But understand, friends, that wasn't the response that Jesus' hearers had when they heard this story. His hearers were thunderstruck. They were outraged at this story. They were shocked by what Jesus said to them. They were shocked at the reckless love of this father. And the story doesn't end there. We know that among Jesus' listeners, there were certain religious leaders, people who were morally upstanding in the community, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, according to Luke 15.1. And these leaders, as they listened to Jesus, were responding rather interestingly. It says they were actually grumbling. They were complaining about what Jesus was saying. Uh, they were saying perhaps to themselves, if not to each other, you know, Jesus, we, we don't get you. I mean, we see the tax collectors and the sinners all flocking to your teaching and your preaching, but we frankly find your message both confusing and offensive. And it's in that context that Jesus tells this story. And it's important to note, too, that the climax of the story is not the prodigal son coming home. It's the dialogue between the father and the elder brother. If you actually look at the whole chapter, you realize this is not the parable of the prodigal son. It's a parable about two sons. And in fact, you realize that this chapter is less about prodigals than it is about Pharisees, elder brothers. And it's not so much teaching a wonderful assurance that, you know, if you wander away, the father will welcome you back, that if your life is broken, a broken mess, that the Father will joyfully receive you as you come home to Him. Although that certainly is part of this story. That's a point of the story, but it's not the main point of the story. The main point is an in-your-face, straight-up warning to good religious people. Jesus is saying nothing comes between you and God more than your self-perceived morality and decency and goodness and respectability. And the good people who heard Jesus tell this story for the first time, they did not like what they were hearing. It bothered them. But again, Jesus wasn't just wanting to tell moving, sentimental, moralistic stories. He was trying to challenge their religious thinking about who God is and who they are and how a person goes about relating to this God. 
And therefore, when you get to the climax of this third story, the story of the son, the big point, right? The big point, the point that Jesus has been working up to is a serious warning to good, moral, religious people. That's really the big point. And his message is offensive to anyone who thinks they are pretty good, moral people. And his message is life-changing to anyone who sees themselves, in contrast to that, as just a hopeless, broken, helpless sinner. And in the history of the church, whenever there has been a revival, you know, when a, when a revival happens, a real revival, there's a love of God quotient that goes way up. People responding to the love of God. There's also a love of people quotient that goes way up in a revival. Revivals like the Reformation in the 1500s or the English revivals of the 1700s and the American revivals here in the colonies that happened back in the 1700s. Um, it was always because the gospel and grace, in a sense, had been rediscovered. It, uh, and the preaching of the gospel, was, it was preached with passion to, to sinners, to broken people, to people who knew that, that they were unworthy that they did not deserve this good news. People who really had no idea that God could be so good and so gracious. And when they heard the good news of the gospel, uh, people would come rushing into the kingdom and into the churches of that time by the thousands, in fact, probably tens of thousands. But sometimes the uh, people who were already in those churches, the morally decent, good, you know, respectable folks, they didn't like these new people always. Nor did they like the message that they were hearing. They wanted to see these, these sinners, right, uh, reform themselves morally, clean their act up, become a hired servant, if you will, like the prodigal, uh, be on probation for a bit before they're welcomed into the family. And the truth is, they didn't really want these, these new believers, many coming from the ranks of the poor and the uneducated and the less privileged and the less civilized. They didn't want these, these so-called sinners joining their meetings or being around their children or sitting in the pews next to them. John Wesley, who was one of those reformers in the 1700s in England uh, and uh, one of the brothers instrumental in starting what today is, of course, the Methodist Church, uh, he has a journal entry in one of his journals. He was a, uh, just a prodigious writer in his journals, and so we have records of so many of the things and the meetings that he led and so on. Well, in one of his journals, he writes about uh, preaching in a very respectable church in London. And uh, on the day that he was preaching there, many of the poorer classes had come to the church. The church was absolutely packed, standing room only. That was not normal for this church. There were usually plenty of seats available in this church. What else was not normal was that the poor, the less civilized, the people without class, you know, showing up for the worship services. Well, Wesley preaches the gospel, and after preaching, many, many people profess faith in Jesus. That, too, was not normal for this church, right? And so a lot of these people, Wesley called them forward, and they came forward. It was messy. It was confusing. Some of them were gyrating in certain ways, and people thought, what the, you know, we don't see that. What's that? What's going on? It was very noisy and so. And after all of the proceedings were done and people were filing out, the warden of the vestry, that's kind of like a head elder, 
He comes marching up to John Wesley, rather perturbed after all of the goings-on, and he says, Sir, you must preach here no more. That's what he said to him. That's what Wesley records. And the warden was offended. He was offended because Wesley was calling people, all the people, to faith and to repentance. He was preaching the gospel. He was telling everybody that their goodness wasn't good enough to save them. And their badness wasn't bad enough to keep them from God, not if they would receive the forgiveness and the grace that Jesus offered. And many of the regular folks in the church were offended because Wesley insisted that they needed God's grace just as much as the so-called sinners, right? And frankly, as we see, in, we see this in Jesus' life, we see this in Jesus' teaching, good people very often are offended by the gospel, by what Jesus has to say. Because the gospel insists, again, that your goodness and my goodness is not good enough. In fact, our righteousness, the prophet Isaiah says, is like filthy rags. And he says that our presumed respectability and acceptability do not make us acceptable to the Father. That's part and parcel of the gospel, part of the good news and the bad news. But here are these rabble in this London church, people who would never normally darken the doorway of a church. And when they hear about this God, this Father that Wesley describes who loves them and who cares about their brokenness, and who sent his son to pay for their sins, who wants to actually have a relationship with them, wants to adopt them into his family. These people are shocked. Nobody's told them that before. They've always felt unwelcome in these places of worship. They had no idea that God was like this. And many, many of them became very interested, had many questions. Many wanted to know more. Many became followers of Jesus. And that here is precisely Jesus' point in the stories that he tells. Look at the elder brother in this story. What we do know about the elder brother is, first, he is lost. Um, He is just as alienated from the father as his younger brother, the prodigal. In each of the stories that Jesus tells in Luke 15 about the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost sons, something is not where it's supposed to be. The sheep is not where it's supposed to be with the other sheep. The coin is missing and the prodigal son has gone off and and left. Something is not where it's supposed to be. And so too, the elder brother, he also is not where he's supposed to be. And in every one of these stories, someone goes out to get back what's lost. Obviously, the shepherd goes after the sheep and the woman goes after the coin and And the father goes out after his prodigal son. And in verse 28, it says, So his father went out to the elder brother. And the point is, the elder brother is just as lost as the sheep and the coin and the prodigal son. Henry Nouwen, who writes a a book about this, I mentioned before that Henry Nouwen, you know, traveled to St. Petersburg where he uh, spent hours sitting in front of Rembrandt's, uh, the prodigal, the painting. I showed you that last week. And as he sat there and prayed and reflected and journaled and wrote, he really, th- that was the seminal thoughts of the book uh, that he wrote. And in that book, he, uh, he says this. He said, not only did the younger son who left home looking for freedom and happiness in a distant country get lost, but the one who stayed home also became a lost man 
exteriorly, he did all the things a good son is supposed to do. But interiorly, he wandered away from his father. He did his duty, worked hard every day, and fulfilled all his obligations, but became increasingly unhappy and unfree, lived in bondage. There's a sense in which you could say that this elder brother became lost in resentment. Uh, And this is a very important point. Jesus is actually saying in his stories, you can be very religious. You can be a, a very moral person. You can be fulfilling your religious duties and still be alienated from my message and my heart, just as the elder brother is in my story. Um. We have a small group that meets in our home on Wednesday nights, and and we've committed to reading uh, the biography of Martin Luther together, the one written by Eric Metaxas. And it's a fascinating biography, and there are many biographies about Martin Luther out there. But if you know anything about him, you know that uh, in the year 1505, he actually became a priest in the Catholic Church. And it wasn't until later, 1517, that he nailed the 95 Theses on the door. So there's a 12-year period there. And quite honestly, that 12-year period for Martin Luther was hell. He'd become a priest. He was doing everything the church instructed him to do. Uh, He would uh, do the canonical prayers seven times a day and throughout the night. Uh, He would go to confession. He would confess to Staupitz, the head of the the Augustinian order where he was. In fact, he was was just a very meticulous confessor of his sins. Uh, He was troubled and and bothered by the fact that he would no sooner reflect on the fact that, oh, wait, I I lusted right there. I'm sorry, Father. Oh, wait a minute, I I lusted again. Uh, Sorry, Father. I just kept, oh, I I just lusted again. I'm I'm really sorry. And, And on and on and on it would go to where Staupitz finally told him, look, Martin, I'm tired of hearing your confessions. And they would go on sometimes for hours. And he actually told them, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but he told them, don't come back to me to confess your sins until you got something really good to confess. That's what he told them. But here was what was going on in Martin Luther's mind. You see, he could not, through the religious duties of a priest, get to a place where he felt that the father was anything other than angry at him, angry at him all the time. Because he knew that there was something unclean about him all the time. He could never be completely pure. And that just tortured Martin Luther for over a decade until he discovered what we're talking about this morning, this thing of the gospel. He was performing all kinds of religious duties, more fervently and passionately than the other brothers of the monastery. But he was finding no peace whatsoever. In fact, he actually came to believe that he hated God because God was always so angry at him. Friends, this this story that Jesus tells that we've been looking at now for weeks is actually, it's a way of Jesus firing a shot across our bow, so to speak. Just because we attend religious services or live mostly publicly moral lives or know some stuff about God and Jesus and perform all kinds of religious duties, it doesn't really, at the end of the day, mean much. In other words, I can look like I'm near to God and I can still be far from Him. Notice in verse 31 of this, of this story, the father says, My son, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. 
And we read that and we think, well, that means then that brother, this son uh, is not lost. But I would submit to you it means actually exactly the opposite. It means he is so lost. You see, he lives with the Father, but doesn't get the Father's love for him. Uh, Jesus says this kind of thing, too, over and over, trying to challenge the religious thinking of people. One time in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and uh, Philip says kind of a dumb thing. Philip says, Jesus, why don't you show us the Father? Then we'll really know him. You know, that's what he's, and Jesus answers him and says, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Philip, look at me. You're doing life with me. I and the Father are one. He wants Philip to understand that and to see his heart and know that that's the Father's heart. Uh, there's another time in Matthew 7. Uh, this, he, Jesus is actually talking about on the last day what that will be like. And he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And of course here, he's not talking about religious duty. How do we know that? Well, we know that based on what he says following. He says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. Wow. The point is that it's possible to be doing good religious stuff, even doing it in Jesus' name, but you have no relationship with Jesus or relationship with the Father. You're not doing what you do because you know and you experience His love for you. Therefore, you will love others. You're doing religious duty and probably resenting it. And therefore, you're still lost. You look like a sheep, but you're not. Honestly, I got to say, you know, I dump this on you because it bothers me all week long. (laughs) This is a radically disturbing teaching, if we're honest, because it challenges every one of us, regardless how good we look on the outside, to examine the inside. This is disturbing. You can be surrounded by the Father's issues and surrounded by the Father's family and involved with the Father's business and crying, uh, carrying out the Father's orders but not know the Father's love. You see, that's the condition of this elder brother. And that's the elder brother problem. When it comes right down to it, to it he doesn't understand his father. He can't fathom why his father doesn't just get even with this prodigal son. Give him a piece of your mind, dad. Let him suffer the consequences of his sin. Too bad if he starves. He had his chance. He blew it. He's made his own bed. Let him lie in it. You see, he doesn't understand the father's thinking. He doesn't know his father's heart for his brother or for himself. None of this makes any sense to him, which illustrates again the fact that although the elder brother has been with the father externally, he doesn't really know the father. He has no real relationship with his father. He is around the father, but still lost. And that's the first point. 
You can be around the Father and still be lost. And that is disturbing. That's what disturbed Jesus' listeners then. That's what should disturb us this morning. Really, Jesus? Really? There's a second point. And that is that the elder brother isn't just lost like the the prodigal. The elder brother in the story is even more lost. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, Dwayne, how can you be more lost? Uh, Lost is lost, right? Uh, Technically, theologically, yes, probably that's the case. But what I'm talking about here is is a little like being dead. You know, humanly speaking, Uh, You would agree that you can be mauled by a lion, have an arm ripped off, have a leg mauled all to mush, chewed up real good, and then finally the lion just grabs your head and crushes your skull, and and now you're dead, right? (laughs) Or you can get bitten by a black widow in your sleep and just never wake up. Both are dead, equally dead. But from another point of view, which kind of dead would you prefer? You see, that's what's kind of going on here in Jesus' story. I mean, yes, the prodigal is lost, but he does come to his senses. And he comes home. He returns to the Father, and his his heart is melted by the love and the grace and the forgiveness of his Father. And I wager he's never the same. Now, the elder brother, even at the end of the story, he has not come home. He has not come to his senses, not really, and we don't know if he will. You see, he's home, but not home, and we're left with all kinds of tension at the end of this story. We're left asking, why doesn't the elder brother rejoice when the father rejoices, when his brother comes back? Why doesn't he see what the father sees? Why doesn't he understand what the father is doing? Why is he angry with his father and angry with his brother? And the best answer we have is in verse 29. He objects to what the Father is doing on the basis of his self-perceived goodness, the difference between him and the brother, right? He objects to what his Father is doing on the basis of his slaving obedience because he says there in verse 29, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. All the stuff you're constantly wanting me to do. In other words, because I obey, I have a right to say, I don't like the way you're running things. Because I obey, I have a right to say, I don't like how my life is working out. I don't like the way that you're handling my younger brother or my estate or my life. You ever been there? Ever said that to God? God, what's going on? You see, it's because he obeys that he feels justified in his anger and he thinks that he has a right to object. Again, he's alienated from his father. Not in spite of good works, but exactly because of them. He has a sense of self-righteousness. And this is one of the most important aspects of Jesus' gospel, friends. You know, we've got to uh, get this for our own personal, spiritual well-being, and for the well-being of our church. Uh, Whenever in church history, the church has rediscovered this truth that we really are just broken, messed up, 
sinners saved by grace. In other words, that we are utterly undeserving and unworthy of the gift of Jesus. Whenever that has been rediscovered in the church, that has always, always, always resulted in an increased love level, an increased affection for the Father and for the Son and for the Holy Spirit. That has always resulted in tremendous compassion in the church for other people, caring about other people. It's always resulted in wanting to serve other people in the church, outside the church, doesn't make any difference. You see, these things are always key indicators of what could be called real spiritual renewal or revival. They are indicators that the church is developing a heart like the heart of the Father's. The church has a renewed interest in, we call them around here, reaching up, connecting with God, worshiping God. The church has a renewed interest in community, connecting with each other, and in reaching out, serving other people. You see, this is the same pattern we see in Jesus' life. But I'll tell you something, when the church gets away from the heart of the Father, things like worship get perfunctory. It becomes more about performance, about duty. It also becomes less of a priority. Yeah, I'll go to worship when it works for me. Not a priority. Worship becomes more me-centered about what I like versus what someone else might like versus being God-centered. What would God like? What would please God? What is my worship like as I offer it up to Him? Something else, worship loses its celebration and its excitement. You ever find yourself being in a worship service and you're standing and we're singing words and you're just bored to tears? Go ahead and raise your hand. No, I'm on ice. I'll just say this. You know, sometimes I walk around and judge you. <laughs> and I'll look around and, and I'll just say, yeah, that, that, that person there is not having a good time. Now, you know, you got to be careful of that because you're probably wrong, you know, probably wrong. But, but I mean, have you ever been in a worship service where you're singing about the remarkable grace of God and it moves you not, not a fig, not at all, nothing? That's what I'm talking about. You know, when the church gets away from the heart of the Father, connecting in community takes a backseat. Not going to do it. Too troublesome, too messy. Can't afford the time. Not going to do it. And yet it's connecting with each other that, man, opens up opportunity to pray for each other, to grow with others, to get into their mess and for them to get into yours and love on each other. Yeah, when the church gets away from the heart of the Father, it gets away too from serving others. Serving others just drops off the radar. The church and the people in it get mostly concerned about themselves, its own comfort, our own needs, our own reputation, our own security, our own dignity, our own rights. Dadgummit, we have rights. Our own rituals, our own authority, our own dogmas. And when this happens, the church will even at times resist the mission of Jesus. It will turn intimate relationship into religion. Lots of duties, lots of things to perform, lots of obligations. It'll resist loving and seeking the lost because that is right at the heart of the Father and the Son. It will resist seeing Jesus' kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And here's, you know, you may wonder, why, why is he spending so much time in Luke 15? Why? It'll be five weeks. Next week uh, we'll be finishing this series, but why? Why so much time in Luke 15? Here's why. Because the antidote, 
the antidote to religion, the antidote to self-righteousness, the antidote to complacency, the antidote to purely self-interest is the gospel. It always has been, and it still is. It's the gospel. And uh, that's why I decided some weeks back we would just take some time and sit in this part of Scripture where Jesus taught the gospel and let it wash over us. Now, here's the thing. I've got like three or four more points uh, to make. Uh, I mean it. I really do. Um, But what I decided to do is just kind of end this sermon right here and pick up those points in the next uh, sermon. Amen? It's the only time you can get an amen out of Presbyterians. (laughs) Amen. Shorten the message. Amen. Got to (laughs) go. But I, I do, in reflecting on what we've just talked about, I want to ask you a question. When you examine yourself, uh, your relationship with the Father, do you find that you are much moved by His love and His grace towards you? Or, or does it just kind of wash off you like water on a duck's back? Do you find that your heart is deeply grateful for the truth about Jesus' mercy and Jesus' love and Jesus' forgiveness for you? Does the gospel affect you in a way that that the Father's cares become your cares or that the Father's values become your values or that the Father's priorities inform your priorities, your choices, your decisions? Do you find that the gospel plants the seed of Jesus' mission in you so much so that you can't ignore it and you can't avoid it when you go to work, when you go to school? The mission of Jesus is now a part of who you are? Or do you have some of the elder brother numbness in you? Like I said, I... As I'm writing those kinds of questions and asking them of you, I do it out of a place of real conviction in my life. I mean, do I do what I do because you pay me to do what I do? Or do I do this out of love for Jesus? Wish I always did it just out of love for Jesus. But I don't. And it pains me to answer those questions. Are my cares the cares of the Father? Are my values the values of the Father? Are my priorities the priorities of my life? Are they they because of the priorities of the Father? Another question. What would coming up to the house, you know, the picture that we're studying right now, There's this elder brother, and he's so angry at his father. He asks the servant, hey, what's going on up at the house? And the servants indicate, well, you know, your brother has come home. And the response of the elder brother is, damn it! 
him again. Taking of my stuff. Squandering my estate. He's not going up to the house. He's not going to celebrate. He can't. He doesn't know or understand the heart of the father for his brother or for him. So I would ask you, what would, what would coming up to the house, you know, what would joining the celebration look like for you? It's so easy. I'll speak for myself. It's so easy to have the things that I do, the, whether it's reading scripture, whether it's coming to be a part of worship, to have them be religious duties and not motivated from places of the heart, places of gratitude, places of thanksgiving. It's What would coming up to the house and joining the celebration look like for you? What would a realignment of the heart look like for you? There's no magic around any of this. <laughs> you know, here at Deer Creek Church, uh, over the last four or five years, we've really been asking the question, what does a path of discipleship look like? Because we believe that we are called as a church to make disciples, and so what does our path of discipleship look like? And we've been viciously, tenaciously trying to simplify this. I don't know if you've been noticing, but we've tried to carve away a smorgasbord of activities and move away from that mindset of ministry and come down to the, the essential things that will help equip men and women and children and students, help equip them along the path of discipleship. And, and for us, you know, these things are tools. They're, there's no magic to them whatsoever, but I need certain tools and certain markers in my life that help me connect with the Father and connect with you, and serve others. It's that simple. And so we do this thing. Trevor mentioned it, and I, I'm just going to emphasize. And, and this, I'm saying this to all of you. I don't care how long you've been at Deer Creek. If you've been at Deer Creek uh, more, than a, more than a year, then you're actually out of the loop for understanding some of these things that have become, that we are now passionate about. This thing of growth track, that's just a gathering that happens first four weeks of every month. And again, there's no magic there, but you know, on the first week of growth track, we simply talk about the gospel because it's so incredibly important that we be clear about what it is. And I would challenge you, if you've been at Deer Creek for some time, go plug into the growth track and take it and, and kind of go through the process again. Figure out, oh, oh, that's the path of discipleship. That's why they're always talking about reaching up and reaching in and reaching out. And that's how that works. And, and in Growth Track, <clears throat> we, uh, we talk about Deer Creek Church the second week and some certain things that kind of characterize us and are pa we're passionate about because we think the Father's passionate about those things. And then the third week, we talk about discovery, personal discovery, because we're pretty convinced that you and I, all of us, need to discover how we're put together spiritually. What are, what's our spiritual gifting? And the fourth week is about taking those spiritual gifts and learning to serve, whether it's serving out there or serving in here or both. That's growth track. It's vital to our health. These are tools that, these are not religious duties. These are tools that God can use to grab our heart and to speak to us and pull us into places of deeper intimacy.
And so my, my question, what would coming up to the house and joining the celebration look like for you? If you found yourself where you've been a little distant from God, scratching your head wondering how or where I fit in and why do I do this? And so, Well, I mean, the Father comes out to plead with you just like he comes out to plead with me, just like he came out to plead with the elder brother. And he wants us to do the things and pursue the things that move us along the path of discipleship. What would your next step look like? Maybe it's growth track. Maybe it's get in a small group. Maybe it's find a place to serve and use your abilities. I can guarantee you it's not sitting out there somewhere on the sideline looking at the celebration going on up at the home and saying, I don't care. This is about me. I know that's not where he wants us. It's not where he wants me. So, like I said, I got four or five more points, but I'm going <laughs> I'm I'm to cram them all into next week's sermon, so you'll be sure and want to be here. Yeah. Uh, and we'll be ending our study next week uh, looking at this, uh, this part of the story of the elder brother. Pray with me. Father God, uh, if I'm honest, I, I have to admit that this whole message this morning is, is directed right at my heart. I think I can say honestly, God, I want my heart to mirror the heart of the Father. And the trouble is that too often it doesn't. But I thank you, Father, where the opportunity like this, where we get together and we rehearse the truths of the gospel together. It's a, it's a weekly marker in my week, each and every week, to remind me who you are and what you've done. And Father, it affects my heart. It changes my heart. And I have to thank you, God, too, for the opportunity each week of meeting with some brothers and some sisters in small group and praying with them and learning with them and discussing with them and just doing life together. I thank you that it's in those kinds of relationships and opportunities that you change my heart. And I thank you for opportunities to serve, serve here and serve in the community, Lord, because I find that doing that too changes my heart. And my prayer would be, God, that you would help each and every one of us figure out what a next step looks like. What would coming home look like? What would joining the celebration look like? Help us each to answer that question, God. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.